Hello and welcome to this fourth episode of The Future of Wealth Management. Today we're speaking to Sean Slotterback of Decipher Finance. It's quite a long episode, but we touch on a lot of very interesting subjects like what's structurally wrong with wealth management today, why clients aren't as well served as they could be, and how quantitative finance can help wealth managers serve their clients better. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Sean Slotterback of Decipher Finance. You can you can find him on decipherfinance.com. Enjoy. You tell us a little bit about uh, what it is you do and what the business is all about. So sure, yeah, I think uh it it might be best to kind of go go into at least give a quick summary of my background. You know, I come from you know, like like yourself, uh, come from a technology background. Uh, I was lucky enough to uh, have graduated uh, into the internet 1.0. Uh, you know, just in time for that entire market to uh, crash, which which left me kind of thinking career. You know, early on in my career, uh, basically had to deal with you know. Uh, you know, a very tough market, uh, and so moved over to to finance, which seemed a bit uh, uh, more stable to me at the time. Uh, got involved in you know research, mortgage research at Morgan Stanley, uh, but pretty quickly had the opportunity to move over to uh, uh, a hedge fund where I got involved in in algorithmic trading uh, early in the two thousands. Um, kind of, I think before you know there was a. a, a on everybody's mind or, or in the news. Uh, so, uh, again, I got involved with a, a hedge fund uh, called Highbridge Capital that was, uh, you know, during my time there, acquired by J.P. Morgan. We became the, the hedge fund arm of J.P. Morgan. Uh, and, you know, we grew that group to be, you know, w- one of the largest quantitative trading groups in the world. Um, after that, I, I, you know, I had a few other, uh, uh, you know, opportunities running, uh, what was called statistical arbitrage strategies at some other uh, hedge funds. Uh, took a try at starting my own hedge fund, uh, but this is all to kind of I think inform uh, uh, where where I ended up going with Decipher Finance, my my, my current company. Uh, is that you know I was deeply involved in in uh, quantitative finance from uh, uh, kind of a hedge fund strategy, uh, in the sense that. Uh, you know, really the, the, I think the payouts at the time and the way the, the compensation structure worked was really kind of attracting some of the best and the brightest. You know, I worked side by side with, you know, IMO winners and, you know, PhDs from Harvard and, you know, U Chicago, et cetera. Um, you know, there was really, it was really set up in such a way that, you know, top quantitative talent was working on this extremely tough problem of, you know, making consistent uh, uh, risk-adjusted returns in very efficient equity markets. Uh, So let's fast forward, I guess, to to a few years ago when, uh, you know, I I saw that industry being a bit more commoditized. I didn't see the same opportunities on on a long horizon as I I necessarily did when I I got into it. and kind of on a on a lark, I started thinking about my own kind of personal finances, which had largely been uh, neglected. So, you know, I think th- th- there was a few year span where, where I guess like a lot of people I ended up, you know, getting married, having kids, uh, buying a house. Uh, and coincidentally, at the same time was was considering, you know, uh, changing my career and, you know, uh, started thinking about, OK, you know, how do I structure my own personal uh, investments. Uh, I think at the time I had largely put them into, you know, generally uh, passive investments, Vanguard funds, et cetera. I think when you're involved in active management, uh, you are probably even more skeptical about uh, managers saying that they can you know, beat the market, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, most, most of the people I know involved in, in, quantitative finance, uh, you know, were the same uh, way, basically investing in passive uh, sort of funds. Um, 
And so th this is this is a long-winded way of bringing me up to you know this this point of thinking. Okay, well, how do I how do I manage my my, my personal finances? And you know, I I my my first kind of uh, uh, you know thought was, well, you know, there's there are asset managers who do this, and let, let's start talking to some of these these financial managers and see see what they have to say. Um, I think you know very quickly I was disillusioned with with at least the, the advisors I was reaching out to, um, you know, so they all had a plan for me. They all had, had, you know, a lot of reasons why I should, you know, move my money, uh, to them. Uh, but the second, you know, I started to scratch the surface, well, you know, why are you recommending this or, uh, well, how do you kind of consider the interplay between, you know, I own a house. Does that mean I should, you know, have not be holding REITs in my investment portfolio or, uh, you know, any sort of, of, it, you know, somewhat deeper question was met either with, uh, well, that, you know, that, that, you know, that doesn't matter so much or, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have our quant team look into that, et cetera. So I think, you know, to, to, to sum up my, my feeling, I was kind of blown away by the, I think the lack of process in, in wealth management. Uh, in other words, you know, I talked to five advisors, we get five different plans, uh, none of which seemed grounded in uh, any sort of, you know, hard, you know, data-driven process. Um, at this time as well, I think some of the robo-advisors were, were starting to get off the ground, places like Betterment and, and, and Wealthfront. And, you know, uh, my, my initial reaction was, you know, great, you know, robo-advisors, this is, you know, we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, this will clearly be a data-driven approach to, to investments. This is exactly you know, what, what uh, you know, I, I want for my own personal portfolio. Uh, I was a bit disappointed, I think, to find that their investment strategies, well, you know, perfectly, uh, you know, I think acceptable in, in a broad sense, uh, were not very sophisticated. They were kind of, I think, lowest common denominator. Uh, I'd still maintain they, they're, you're probably better off just getting a target date fund uh, uh, from Vanguard rather than going into a robo-advisor. Uh, I think you pretty much end up getting the same sort of glide path solution uh, for about half the price. Um, so, you know, after kind of, I guess, searching, you know, high and low, talking to a financial advisors, talking to expensive ones, cheap ones, robo-advisors, I, I kind of sat down to try to, uh, you know, see if I could basically just solve the problem for myself. Uh, you know, I think my initial motivation was to just write a, a passive kind of trading strategy. Uh, well, I don't want to say, say investment strategy. It was never about alpha. It was simply kind of uh, just just setting up, the, you know, the same sort of glide path strategy you would get from, from Vanguard. I just, you know, figured I could implement that myself, being a programmer and all. Um, and what I found was, you know, like... I guess trading, you know, my, my first, you know, uh, step was to, you know, read the, the journal, the academic journals about what was being written. Uh, you know, I, I think I quickly found that a, there wasn't a lot of kind of the same sort of theoretical grounding or at least academic research into the problem as, as they're, you know, as compared to, you know, finding alpha and, you know, statistical arbitrage trading strategies. Um, but, you know, second, you know, I, I found that as I dove into the, the problem from my point of view of like building a model from the ground up of modeling my household, thinking about, you know, what, you know, how I wanted this passive investment portfolio to, uh, you know, ultimately what I wanted to do, uh, you know, I, I kept, it was like pulling, you know, a thread out of a sweater, you know, at first, you know, I developed this passive, you know, just a, a simple kind of passive uh, portfolio allocation in my first question, well, you know, yeah, but I don't have a single account here. I've got, you know, in my household, I think I ended up having 17 different investment accounts. There was, you know, savings accounts, there was 401ks following me around from different jobs. Uh, you know, uh, I had a health savings account. I had a college account for each kid. Uh, my wife, you know, keeps her finances separate. And so, you know, multiply all this by two. And so, you know, one of, one of the first questions I had was, all right, you know, I have a passive portfolio here. Well, how do I, you know, allocate this across these different, you know, tax deferred, tax advantage, uh, you know, fully taxable accounts. 
And, you know, again, I was surprised to, to not see a, a, a very, you know, uh, uh, you know, I guess, good answer to what, what I later learned was called the tax location problem. Um, and so, you know, I think that was, that was one of the, 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 the first kind of really major points where I'm like, oh, okay, you know, there's, there's something, there's something to be done here, even, even in a passive strategy, uh, there is uh, some improvement to be made around this, considering things at the household level. Well, you know, I think that that started me down a road of thinking about, okay, well, you know, how does, how does risk kind of fit into this? And, you know, typical sort of risk uh, assessments from financial advisors seemed a bit silly to me. And, you know, ultimately, kind of ended up just putting you in, in one of, you know, five or 10 model portfolios that had some sort of, you know, target risk. Um, and that, that really wasn't, you know, satisfactory in, in my mind for, for my personal use, because I had, uh, you know, my notion of risk is something around, uh, you know, shortfall of, of some sort of goal. I had. So, you know, imagine my, my, my kid's college account, the, you know, I don't think about risk in that account as, you know, what the variance is. I think of the risk as, you know, what's the, the probability that, you know, there's not enough money in there to fund my, you know, my kid's college. So uh, it turns out, you know, that that is a way that you can mathematically think about risk in the, in the same, you know, in a similar structure to thinking about, you know, target variance or whatever. Um, but it just wasn't something that was commonly being, you know, being used or even even talked about. So, uh, you know, I won't go into to the you know the, the other details, but I, I think you know point you know at point after point in this process of just building up an investment strategy for myself, uh, I came across these kind of these these uh, situations that were not addressed in the theoretical literature that turned out to have a very large impact on not only performance but on how I should approach the investment. Uh, and at the end of the day, we're, you know, we're difficult, but still tractable problems. Uh, and so long-winded way of, you know, this is how Decipher Finance was, was born, you know, at, at, you know, after a few months of kind of building out these models, starting to manage my own, you know, uh, family money, uh, uh, with, with this methodology, um, you know, I looked around and saw, you know, th this sort of kind of data-driven quantitative methodology not being offered to others. It, it was software based, so it could be offered at scale. Uh, and, you know, it seemed like, you know, something not, not only an opportunity to build a business, but it seemed like an, an opportunity to really push the ball forward uh, broadly in wealth and, and asset management. And so, you know, to, to sum up Decipher Finance, you know, uh, there, there are very specific things we do around tax optimization and, and goal-based, you know, portfolio construction. But I, I think at the end of the day, uh, the, the goal and the, the, the idea is even broader. It's, it's simply just data process-driven investment management uh, automated at, at scale for, for, for people. Speaking about tax optimization, I, I think there's a uh, uh, oftentimes that that term lumps in a lot of different sort of strategies. You know, I think about kind of three distinct kind of areas of tax optimization. You know, number one is this issue of you know when you're whenever you're liquidating some sort of investment, uh, you're taxed on the realized gains, and there are, there are kind of strategies that you can follow from an accounting perspective. To uh, you know, minimize the, the the realized gains on on any investment at, at any point in time, and and you know, in that in a sense, that's tax optimization. It's pretty pretty straightforward, and and you know, I'd say an accounting problem. Uh, yeah. There are things like tax loss harvesting, which are a little bit more sophisticated, uh, but still fairly straightforward. And and then there's this you know what what I think is the the largest problem, mostly because it's it's a forward looking problem, and it's one that compounds over multiple years is, you know, tax location is how to structure your investments uh, from a tax optimal point of view to begin with. And, and the, the difficulty there and what makes that not as commoditizable as say, um, you know, uh, backwards looking tax strategies is the fact that you, how, uh, uh, 
how you are going to be taxed on a particular security is uh, depends on a lot of factors. You know, if if I'm holding an ETF, say you know uh, uh, you know uh, VWO or something like that, uh, it's going to pay me returns uh, in terms of short-term capital gains. I'm going to have long-term capital gains. I'm going to have uh, you know dividends that here in in the U.S. And by, by the way, I should mention I'm based here in in, in New York. Um, you know, here in America, we have qualified dividends and non-qualified dividends that are taxed at vastly different rates. And so yeah. if, if you think about how just to even begin to model what the tax uh, uh, rate is going to be on an investment, you have to, in a very forward-looking manner, understand what the returns are going to look like, understand what the dividend rate is going to be like, understand how those dividends are going to be qualified versus non-qualified. Uh, just to begin to model that that forward-looking tax problem, and and that's that's much more difficult because they they were going from just kind of rote algorithm to having to do some sort of of forecasting into the future of of what what uh, you know what what how the investment is going to operate from a, a, a tax perspective. Yeah, yeah. So. Going back a little, uh, a little mm-hmm. bit um, to what we talked about earlier uh, before before we started recording, uh, what's your view on, on the problem of contemporary wealth management? Why aren't clients being as well served as they deserve to be? I, I think you know fundamentally it comes down to a, a uh, uh, information asymmetries in the market that it is very difficult for a consumer to judge a good investment plan for a, from a bad investment plan. You know, basic economic theory kind of, you know, tells us, you know, you know, efficient markets are, are kind of predicated on uh, having full information on what is being bought and what is being sold. If the consumer can't really distinguish a good financial advisor from a bad financial advisor, then, you know, we are not going to converge to any sort of, optimal solution anytime soon. So I think then the second question is, well, well, why can, uh, uh, you know, why is it that consumers are unable to judge good, uh, financial advice from bad financial advice? And I I think that that's, there's a couple issues there. Number one is there are a lot, there's lots of noise in the market, right? So you can have a, a long-term strategy that's very sound, but from year to year, it's, you know, your investments might be up, they might be down, they might go through drawdown periods, et cetera. And those are difficult to, to predict beforehand. And so, uh, you know, what you really care about in that sense is, is, is a long-term trend. And that's difficult to discern, you know, uh, you know, beforehand. And it's difficult to discern, you know, unless you, you've, you know, been in the investments for several years. Uh, a second issue is, that I think we were just hinting at is the long-term nature of the uh, uh, of investments. So, in other words, if I purchase a financial plan, in some sense, uh, you know, I'm not going to know whether it was a good plan until it's you know you know 20 or 30 years on. I'm not going to know whether my retirement plan was was the correct choice or not. Uh, and so, we, we have two things here. A, there's a very there's not a quick feedback loop there. There's a very long, uh, you know, uh, uh, long-term feedback loop that goes basically over generations. Uh, and, you know, each consumer only gets one chance at it, right? You don't, you, you don't, you, you can't make in some sense a mistake at all. You, you, you get one shot at forming a, a retirement plan and that's it. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think, these sorts of, of, of difficulties uh, mean that uh, consumers basically have, have difficulty choosing. Now, on, on the, the, the producer side, the supply side, you have, uh, you know, from the financial advisor point of view, you know, what, what motivates them? Well, well, generally, they get paid on things like, you know, assets, you know, assets under management. I mean, there, there are other models where, you know, they've gotten paid to, to push product. Uh, and that's an even worse sort of situation that, that I won't touch on. But just even the modern sort of, uh, 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 you know, financial advisor is paid on assets under management. And, 
and you know what what drives assets under management well it's it's things like like sales you know trying to describe to a consumer uh you know uh, the details of why such and such a financial plan is more tax efficient than another is, is beyond the scope of, of what a lot of, uh, you know, consumers can understand. And so I, I think the the drive to just increase short-term AUM uh, leads to a market where, you know, bells and whistles might be put on the investment plan, but there's no real drive towards a fundamental, better long-term strategy. Yeah. And what you say about the long-term nature of it and information asymmetry, it's a bit like buying a used car, but with a used car, at least you know you if you bought a lemon in the first year, because it will probably break down, whereas your retirement plan, uh, well, 20, 30 <laughs> years passes, and uh, you're either lucky or you're out of luck. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, that the, you know, the lemon laws, I think, were, you know, the, you know, the research into the market for lemons, I think, was Akerlof, uh, who, who did that, you know, I mean, that was pretty seminal, uh, in, in economics and, you know, it required, you know, I, I think there's, you know, specific lemon laws for, for used cars. Like it took, it, it, it was a case in which kind of classical, you know, economic theory, uh, was not sufficient to explain the market and really required, uh, some sort of, sort of legislation to come in and, and correct that, that inefficiency, uh, which is, you know, uh, certainly financial markets are filled with, with regulations. Uh, you know, the question is, you know, are they, you know, are, are they powerful enough or smart enough to, to be able to, to correct for the deficiencies in the market? Yeah, I guess this kind of leads into the subject of um, financial markets regulation quite, uh, quite nicely. But uh, I mean, a lot of the time, wealth managers and, and banks, they see, uh, they see regulation as a bit of a just friction in the machine, something that is done separately rather than something that's integrated into the advisory process. How do how do you see that whole picture? Um, I mean, I, I, I preface by saying I think regulation is important in financial markets. I think it can be done well. Uh, I also think it's it's very difficult to do correctly so you know there you know i i i'm i was a big believer in like the glass steagall act here in the u.s separating you know commercial banking from investment banking and i i still to this day wonder why you know that sort of smart sort of uh regulation uh ended up you know going by the wayside uh i i think you're completely right that you know well-intentioned uh regulation uh, when it actually is implemented within the banks becomes a, uh, almost a rubber stamp. I mean, I, I can speak to this personally when I, when I was at Morgan Stanley, uh, you know, one of my first jobs on wall street, uh, my first job on wall street, actually, what, you know, one of my, my jobs there was to run the nightly risk numbers on, uh, the structured product group at, at Morgan Stanley. And I'll say that there was the, the, you know, there were the risk numbers reported, uh, you know, up to, to management for, for kind of reporting for regulatory needs. And then there was the actual risk metrics used by the traders actually holding uh, the, those, those books. And there, there was not a lot of overlap between the, those two methodologies. Uh, so, I mean, it was the, the process in place there at, at the time, and this was like 2002, uh, a long time ago, but, uh, you know, the, the, the reported risk numbers were done by, you know, a guy like me at the time, you know, a 23-year-old associate. Uh, that, uh, you know, I think that fact in and of itself demonstrates, you know, how the, the lack of, of uh, uh, you know, rigor or seriousness that was afforded to, you know, that sort of financial regulation, even at a place like Morgan Stanley. Um, I think the difficulty often lies is that it's it's very difficult to legis legislate to create effective legislation for uh, financial institutions. Uh, you know, if they if it's at a too high level, then it kind of gets ignored. If it's too kind of detailed, then you know basically you're setting up oftentimes setting up a game where you have you know a set of people making rules and another set of people, uh, you know, 
trying to find ways around that those rules. And unfortunately, again, the way the incentives are set up, uh, the people kind of writing the rules don't have a lot of, you know, financial incentive to, to make them uh, uh, effective. Whereas the people playing the game and the rules have a very high uh, incentive uh, to make money by perhaps skirting the, uh, uh, the spirit of the, these rules. Uh, and so it's, I, I think it's, 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 it's very difficult. And I, I think, you know, it's, you know, until the, the, I, I guess, regulatory bodies kind of uh, are afforded more resources to make more effective regulation, it's, it's going to be difficult. Uh, you know, particularly in, in wealth management, uh, again, I think this is uh, a similar sort of problem. So talking about things like is a particular uh, investment appropriate for, for an individual, that's, it, it's hard to write hard and fast rules for what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. Uh, and so it, it, it's, you know, it's given, I guess, the, 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 the fuzzy lines around that sort of definition, uh, it either devolves into kind of a set of rule following where they can just check the box and, you know, cover, you know, you know, cover themselves, uh, or it becomes just largely ineffective. Um, so I, you know, I don't know what the, the, the answer is. I mean, I, 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 I see, I guess by and large, you know, regulation to be ineffective, but, you know, without significant resources afforded to the regulators, I, I don't know how that, that improves. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've got a good example here of MIFID 2, which was introduced uh, in the EU, which is basically about consumer protection and suitability and appropriateness, how that was a little bit ill-designed, ill I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I found in my broker ac- brokerage account uh, in February of last year that all of a sudden I could no longer directly trade uh, American ETFs because mm. they were missing some i think it's called a priips document that's required for um any sort of any sort of exchange traded fund type products uh, in the eu and mm-hmm. i don't think i don't think any of them have actually created that yet but all of a sudden um i can't trade um an etf on say um s&p 500 but I'm still able to trade every single stock, including penny stocks, yeah, <laughs> on right. on every American market. Yeah, I mean that that that's a a, a great example. Uh, I think about how these you know a, a well intentioned you know reg, regular you know regulation uh, in practice just ends up you know either just creating unnecessarily unnecessary frictions for a person like yourself, or just you know degenerating into you know you know annoyingness basically yeah yeah i mean i uh, one way around it that i found which um i'm not sure if it's by design or or just the way it is but um i can apparently write options uh, on etfs and <laughs> then if i get assigned uh then then i can hold it <laughs> so that's one way of, one way of doing it but i'm not sure it's actually uh protecting any consumers if they're if they're not uh, well versed in the risks and um implications of writing options <laughs> Yeah, you know, and one one other thing that 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 example brings brings to mind is, you know, uh, I think that the the initial reaction to uh, uh, you know regulation is, you know, well, it creates all these 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 frictions for the banks and these the, you know the, the the incumbent banks aren't you know don't don't like that sort of thing, uh, but you know, recently I've been been thinking about you know fintech in general and kind of you know innovation and disruption in in, in kind of the, you know, uh, consumer financial world. And it strikes me more and more that the, the sort of the compliance apparatus at large banks is serving to, I think, entrench the incumbent somewhat. So if you have this, you know, complicated set of regulations that requires, a uh, you know, a lot of red tape and bureaucracy to implement, uh, you know, on the outside, the banks are, are complaining about this, but at the end of the day, it means, you know, a, a small startup uh, just doesn't have the, the resources to kind of, uh, in a very practical sense, uh, uh, meet these, these compliance uh, demands. And so, you know, is, you know I, I, I don't think, un, you know, there should be unregulated disruption in, in financial, uh, uh, financial industry. 
but at the other end, I think we're, we're maybe a bit too far the under the under, other end of the spectrum where, you know, compliance and regulation uh, just creates walls around the, the incumbents, uh, you know, that, that, you know, the disruptors are, are unable to, to, to surmount unless they have significant financial uh, uh, resources uh, to devote to yeah. that area. I think this is, um, you know, speaking of my adopted home country, I think this is, might be an area where Switzerland actually has certain benefits because um, Switzerland has a principle principles-based regulatory framework and legal framework. So um, they don't try to spell out every step and hop you need to jump through. They spell out the principles that you need to follow. And then uh, within that, um, it's then you know up to up to yeah. people to interpret but usually kind of best practices fall out of fall out of that but it becomes a less of a box ticking exercise hopefully and more of a you know how does this practically impact our business yeah i think and i think that's that's the you know out of two difficult roads i think that's probably the the uh the correct way to to, to go about it to to you know legislate at a uh, a general uh Kind of principle level, uh, and allow implementation to go where it may, and to be flexible uh, with the markets instead of you know, like you said, mandating a bunch of you know boxes that need to be checked or forms that need to be filed, etc. Yeah, but that again doesn't doesn't say that big uh, institutions will stop box ticking because I think uh, in in kind of siloed uh, big financial institutions, um, no offense, but uh, they they quite often end up in um, kind of functional silos. And um, if you have a illegal department, they very rarely get any negative consequences from saying no or mandating some boxes to be ticked so yeah there's there's kind of a lack of holistic thinking i think within uh, within the very large organizations there's probably exceptions but the ones that i have seen from the inside uh, that tends to be true yeah i think that, i think that's true and i think you know that another difficulty lies in, in the fact that you know legislating for things like uh uh you know uh you know managing risk that you know, we, we we generally only have legislation to to manage risks that we've already had in the past, right? So each kind of market crash or each kind of you know uh, uh, maybe not even market crash, just just kind of uh, uh, crisis, you know, like the savings and loan kind of uh, crisis, um, you know, is happening anew. And so when when you kind of legislate at two fine grained of a level you're you're constantly behind the the curve in terms of protecting uh uh you know from the next risk that's going to impact uh the the you know the people that matter yeah yeah exactly but um going back a, a bit again to you, you talked about risk and and goals and i completely agree that um you know, having some variance as a as a measure of risk, it tells the consumer absolutely nothing. Having having something like uh, you said about how, what is the likelihood of them missing a significant life goal that makes a lot more sense to to mm-hmm. the end clients. Uh, but why do you think it is that wealth managers aren't equipped um, to help their clients reach their goals in a in a more meaningful way? Um, equipped in the sense that why don't, you know, well, I guess there, there's a, a couple ways in terms of the tools or in terms of their mindset. Well, why don't we, why don't we, um, look at both? Uh, I think there's probably factors that, uh, come together. It, there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one, one probably drives, uh, the other. I mean, I think n- number one, uh, is that even, you know, basic kind of, uh, uh, quantitative, uh, uh, methods say what, what's being used for, you know, at places like betterment or, or fidelity or, or Vanguard, the, this kind of, you know, mean variant optimal portfolio, which is kind of a theory that was, you know, begun, you know, in the 1950s, uh, and, you know, is still being used in practice, uh, largely as, as, you know, as it was back then, um, is still difficult to kind of, uh, I, I don't think a lot of financial advisors fully grasp what 
you know, things like efficient frontier really mean and what the assumptions that underpin that. Uh, and yet that's the, the sort of theory that's, that's driving the, you know, some of the investments that, that they're recommending. So, you know, uh, I, I think fundamentally there's, there's a lack of, of, uh, education, uh, for financial advisors around, uh, investment methodologies. Uh, you know, I think, I get, I think qualifications like the CFA, I know that there, there seems to be an explosion of, of acronyms appearing after people's names, uh, the, these days, but you know, the, the CFA qualification, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, the, the syllabus there is, is quite serious here. Uh, so, um, you know, I think number one is, is advisors, uh, need to better understand the, the, the core of the, the investment problem problem and where the shortfalls in current methodologies are uh, and where the strengths are. I think that there are, there are tools available. I think what is being used, uh, you know, of those say more advanced tools, you know, I, I think we have, you know, at Decipher, we, we, we have some fairly advanced tools. Uh, there, there's, there are other firms out there uh, with a lot of smart, you know, PhDs from Stanford, et cetera, kind of working on similar problems with, uh, you know, similar sort of uh, um, uh, kind of advanced, you know, techniques in, in wealth management, but they're just largely not, you know, they're not being adopted. Uh, and so it's not that there is a lack of ability to improve financial, you know, uh, uh, wealth management. It's not that it's, not being offered in the market, it is, there's, there's just a lack of, of adoption. Uh, and I, I think, again, that goes, that, that goes back to the, the longer term nature of, of the, the, the problem. I, you know, I, I, I was speaking with, with a financial advisor a, a few years ago who put it to me uh, like this. Uh, so, you know, right now, and me speaking as him, you know, I'm, the, you know, I'm, a, I'm advising certain clients on an investing strategy and let's say I, I find, you know, I, I go through all the effort of understanding some sort of new, uh, you know, better methodology to be investing, uh, to be managing money with. So I have to go to my client and explain, number one, why what I was doing before uh, wasn't, you know, as good as, you know, the, the investment strategy I'm about to put that person into. Uh, so that takes a lot of work in explaining uh, and finesse to, to kind of switch that investment strategy. Uh, and then imagine the case that that investment strategy is in the favor of the client, uh, but maybe it's only giving them an extra 10 bips on average, uh, you know, a year or something like that. Uh, you know, for them, for the client to see the true benefit of that, you know, they're, they're going to have to, you know, wait 30 years to get through all the noise and to kind of compound that benefit. By that time, the financial advisor, you know, likely won't, won't be around to kind of, you know, capture some of that benefit. Uh, on the other hand, let's say there's the, the investment advisor, you know, goes to, a, a, again, a, a, an improved investment methodology, and there happens to be a market crash outside of his, his or her control the, the, the next year. Well, their clients are, you know, he runs the risk of having their clients, you know, the clients basically point to uh, the, the poor performance and say, it's, it's your fault. You know, the, the reason I lost so much money is because you put me in this new methodology, which you don't understand and I don't understand. Uh, and so I think there, there tends to be some economic forces from the financial advisor's point of view that, that tends to keep them in, in very simple, safe uh, kind of hewing to the, the, the median type of, of strategies and to really dissuade them from using any sort of new methodology or, or anything that, that would not, would be considered outside, you know, what it, you know, what the, the vast bulk of other advisors are doing. They all kind of want to herd around similar strategies, but, and, and, you know, I, I understand that. I think it makes sense. Uh, I think, that that is a better situation than having rampant kind of, you know, changes all, you know, all over the place. Uh, but it's still stifling, uh, to the, to innovation and it still kind of puts a very, you know, uh, large 
barrier in between uh, the consumer and better financial advice. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I think there's actually quite a good analogy for the herding behavior that you uh, mentioned. I'm not sure how familiar you are with um, Brexit in the UK, but um, you've probably heard of it at least. <laughs> uh, in, in the run-up to that, um, pretty much all the polling, polling institutes were uh, putting Remain uh, in front. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the votes came in, it was a little bit of a shock, but yep. actually when, uh, you know, when everything came out in the wash, it turned out that several of the pollsters actually had the leave vote um, ahead and ahead by quite a big margin actually. Uh, but because they saw the numbers from their competitors, they actually went in and by hand, uh, basically manipulated the numbers so they would be closer to their competitors. So in case they were mm. wrong, they wouldn't be wrong by too much. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that sounds like a, a, a perfect, perfect analogy. I mean, it gets, it gets to the point about, I think why you are using forward looking predictions. And this, this might be why, why hedge funds, at least in the past and at least in the, the scope of quantitative uh, strategies were, were more successful because you know the you know, the heart of quantitative trading is 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 forecasting, right? And it's forecasting at a fairly high frequency. And if you get it right, you make money. And if you don't get it right, you go out of business. Uh, and so that sort of short term feedback loop creates a mechanism where you know people are 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 doing you know make every effort to. Uh, you know, produced unbiased forecast and unbiased research. Uh, when you're doing, you know, the, these pollings where there's not, you know, w- what if if you get, you know, outside of, of financial markets where you know you're you're penalized for for losing with with actual dollars. If you're just kind of throwing out sort of predictions into into the ether, um, you know, I, I don't think there's the same forces make you know that 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 produce good. Good predictions. In other words, it, it doesn't happen at uh, a fast enough. There's not. It's not a repeated process. Uh, if you get it wrong, you know, you say, "Oh well," and you kind of go on to the next, you know, uh, uh, problem. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it's it's the same problems with you know, as you see, like pundits, you know, on on uh, TV talking about, you know, oh, this is what your investment should be, or you know, I'm calling this crash or or this this event. Uh, at the end of the day, there's, there's, you know, there's not much downside for getting it wrong. If you're an investor, if you're a trader, uh, there very much is. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, I, 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 I tend to, to think, you know, follow financial markets tend to, you know, people who put money behind opinions uh, should be, I think, considered more, uh, uh, more closely than, than people just spouting, you know, sort of advice into, into the ether. Yeah. I mean, you have multiple of these, um, what I would call doomsday, um, doomsday proponents who still live, uh, you know, live off the reputation of having predicted uh, the financial crash in 2008. But uh, what they rarely add to it is that they've accurately uh, predicted um, 25 of the last two crashes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this so. is... And, and from the, the point of view of the consumer, so you get, you know, scared consumers and they, they, you know, purchase, you know, get into investments like the VIX, right? Where, you know, if, it, you know, it, it's an investment that, that would perform well in a crash, but if you, but it doesn't work if you hold it for any period of, you know, if you hold it for any long period of time, it just bleeds, bleeds money. Uh, you know, it's not enough to, to call, you know, these sorts of crashes. You have to call it, you know, precisely in time. Uh, and you can't be wrong too too much of the time as, as well. Yeah, yeah, it becomes a, an issue of both both timing and and being right. Yes. So, um, so if you look at the more kind of quantitative investment process, how how do you see that working? Uh, you know, in how should it work? In 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 the context of of wealth wealth management, uh, yeah. You know, I think the 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 first issue is, is I think to not number one, all right, recognize that this is going to be a data driven, you know, process. And so the first thing we need uh, for data driven, driven process 
uh, is the data itself. And so the first uh, thing, that, thing that comes is to, uh, uh, you know, collect as much data as possible uh, on the, the person whose wealth is being managed, you know, understanding what their goals are, uh, you know, what their taxes look like. Uh, you know, what their current portfolio looks like. And so number one is just collect as much information uh, as possible. Um, hopefully that information, again, being being unbiased. I mean, there's, there's, you know, I guess you can say there's two types of data here. There's kind of self-reported, you know, risk questionnaires. And then there's, you know, simply looking at the person's, you know, transactions and looking at, at the, the, you know, the data on, on how they behaved in the past. Uh, and, you know, I think you need to kind of collect both types of, of, of information and treat them somewhat differently. Uh, but that, that, that's the, the first step. I think the, the second sort of step is to, uh, you know, follow that data mixed with, you know, there, there's this notion of kind of, you know, a Bayesian process where we, we, we kind of, we have a, a prior sort of, uh, 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 you know, model about how the, the, the world operates and, and that, that prior model is kind of updated with, uh, uh, you know, incorporated into our, our view via, you know, very well-defined process. So I think, you know, you, you need to, to collect the data, you need to uh, correctly work with the data, you need to have some sort of theory and structure behind uh, how the wealth management process sh should be run. Uh, and I think at that point, it becomes a, uh, uh, at least from the investment point of view, it starts to become a, a software uh, issue. So the, the question is, you know, we have all this data and stuff. Certainly, you know, an old, an old model of kind of just reading it and winging it doesn't work. Uh, even the model of trying to load this sort of stuff into a, an Excel spreadsheet is probably is no longer sufficient. I mean, we need to start, you know, incorporating techniques from, just just the sheer amount of of data we have on on individuals at this point uh, almost demands a machine learning uh, uh, sort of big data approach to uh, uh, to even to, to to getting any sort of conclusion out of this data. So uh, all, all this, though, I guess you know, harkening back to both both our backgrounds, becomes a a, a software uh, and a process driven problem. Uh, now. I don't think that that means that there's no place for, for financial advisors in, in any of this. I think there are, you know, I think about it, there are things that computers are good at and there are things that people are good at and you should have, you know, computers do the sort of the data crunching and the modeling and you should have the, the people, you know, doing the, the model interpretation, uh, you know, uh, the, the relationship management uh, and, and, and even the, you know, say, catching the, the, the edge cases. So, you know, I think even the most advanced models available for, for wealth management probably still leave, you know, uh, uh, a myriad of edge cases kind of unexplored. So, you know, for instance, we, we may have software to develop very tax, you know, efficient strategies for somebody, you know, kind of living on such and such an income with such and such a portfolio in, 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 in the U.S., uh, but what if that person, you know, has income coming from two different jurisdictions? What if uh, they have, uh, uh, you know, some sort of life event coming up that they know about and is drastically going to shift uh, what their investing needs or investing ability is? There, there's, there's so much detail that can be brought to bear to the problem that, you know, I think we are still you know, we're about as far away from uh, generalized computer-driven investment management as we are from, you know, generalized AI, which is, you know, still something that's far off uh, uh, in the future. And so, you know, for, for, the, for the foreseeable future, you know, there, there's, there still has to be some hybrid model of, you know, uh, computers do it going where they can and I, uh, uh, an investment advisor saying, okay, is there something in this particular situation that this model is not covering or that would imply a drastically different uh, 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 you know, set of actions than what the computer is dictating? I know I think yeah. I went off on a bit of a, a tangent there. Hopefully that, that got to, to a bit of a point of your question. Yeah, no, no, I think so. And I think, I think the answer is, uh, is interesting. I think... Yeah, maybe it becomes, I mean, going back 
a little bit to the whole question of feedback. Maybe uh, it doesn't answer the question on, you know, how do clients get feedback sooner than 30 years, but it might, uh, maybe the future investment approach is uh, a little bit of a, that of a data scientist testing various hypotheses on given a set of circumstances. So that's the kind of combination of, of human and, and computer. I don't know uh, what your your take on that is, but if that's a fair characterization. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that, that, that's largely correct. I mean, at at the end of the day, you can, you know, your investments, you're you're going to take a set of actions, right? You're going to buy, even lack of buying an investment is, is an action, right? And so what, Mm. what are those actions based on? Uh, Are they based on kind of emotion and kind of guessing, or are they based on, on data? Even, you know, I'd say, there are situations where, you know, you have two people like one doing a data driven approach and another doing kind of a gut driven approach. You know, there, there's going to be scenarios in which one wins and the other loses, uh, you know, uh, and it's hard to predict what's going to happen. And again, there's so much noise in, in the markets, especially in the short term. Yeah. It's hard to, to kind of, yeah, pr- predict. And so uh, I, I think just, I, I think it's more of a, uh, it has to be kind of a structural view that, that, you know, it should be, you know, these investment decisions should be process and data driven to as much as possible rather than emotion or, or whim driven. Yeah. Uh, I'm a little bit conscious of time in case you need to uh, drop off or, or I, anything. I, I'm fine. I'm actually good for okay, another good. Half, half, half hour. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just uh, thought I'd check that. So uh, we're not running over. Uh, but yeah, I think we kind of jumped around a little bit around the around the questions that we prepared in advance. So it's <laughs> difficult to follow the structure fully, but that's uh, that's fine. Um, I guess one other thing, going back to the whole feedback and um, wealth manager selection uh, problem from from a client's perspective, do you do you think are there any solutions you could apply to? Um, Firstly, how to get the feedback sooner than 30 years so you know if you've bought a lemon or not. Uh, and, and perhaps relatedly, um, is there some process or criteria that you see that, uh, that could be applied to selection of, um, of wealth managers and money managers? That, you know, that, that would be feasible for someone who is not an, a domain expert. Yeah. So, so, you know, number one is, you know, I, I'd say there, there is no silver bullet here. There is no kind of perfect answer, but I think there are, there are ways to kind of, uh, push closer to, uh, uh, shortening that feedback loop and and improving it. And I think that that largely revolves around, uh, things like transparency, right. Um, you know, number one, I I think, you know, we, we discussed previously, you know, investment advisors, you know, pitching both of us with such and such an advice, you know, it'd be, you know, having standardized ways of, of reporting performance, uh, uh, would be kind of a first step. Uh, the problem is there's no, there, there's not even a lot of accepted sort of, uh, uh, metrics around performance and how to deal with kind of missing gaps and in, in, in performance history. Uh, there's not, you know, one, metric of risk that's, you know, accepted in all cases. So, uh, I think, I think, you know, a little bit of work needs to be done in kind of standardizing the transparency of the past performance of, of investment advisors. Uh, I think number two is, you know, refocusing from things like, you know, uh, uh, in, you know, investment returns, uh, you know, an over-focus on returns. And, and, you know, the financial media is, is you know, I think one of the, the big, um, uh, uh, you know, purveyors of, of this sort of myth. I mean, I don't know how often I read a, uh, uh, an article, even in, you know, places like New York Times or Financial Times, et cetera, uh, where they're saying, all right, you know, that when the market's way up and they're reporting, well, hedge funds are, are kind of underperforming the market or, you know, such and such an advisor was great because he had, you know, this 500% return, you know, uh, this, this basic idea of going from returns to this notion of risk adjusted returns, um, is still not, not broadly known or, or, or reported. And, you know, I think it's that, that sort of poor, 
poor reporting that 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 buries uh, this this essential transparency of of knowing what a good investment strategy is and and what a, what a bad one is. Uh, I think another step is to uh, have report you know aggregate reporting by you know especially places like Morgan Stanley or UBS that have these armies of of advisors uh you know having some transparency into the the variability of their their advice the the variability of the performance of their advice etc uh there are things like like you know uh again transparency in terms of post tax returns uh it's one thing to you know uh you know, talk about what, what my investment performance has been, but I don't, I don't spend my pre-tax dollars. I, I can only spend post-tax dollars. And given that tax is a huge, hugely important portion of the investment process, possibly, you know, one of the, the most important aspects, uh, simply ignoring them in performance, you know, ignoring taxation in performance reporting, uh, you know, puts another kind of, you know, dark cloth over the entire process. So, now, I think it's, I, I think the answer is an iterative one and it's one towards tr- transparency, uh, and better, better reporting, uh, uh, in general. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, it's, it's a difficult one to crack because, um, yeah, like you say, uh, I mean, an, an independent advisor can have a return that uh, deviates from from the rest. Uh, mm-hmm. It can be worse worse than the S and P, but actually, uh, from the risk adjusted uh, perspective, their strategy has worked perfectly because um, they were just set up to be conservative with, with yep. the clients a client's money. I mean, if you yeah. just wanted returns, then you you just. Um, lever up as much as, uh, yeah, as your right. broker would would uh, would yeah, allow exactly. you and uh, you know uh, go long on some penny stock and hope it hope you win the lottery yeah yeah and you know and, and there's issues of, of even you know if you're purely reporting historical performance and you have you know an advisor who started you know a few years ago well you know they're going to report you know, and they have, you know, any beta greater than one, you know, they're going to be reporting this, you know, fantastic performance. Uh, whereas if you had an older, more experienced financial advisor who was, you know, managing things throughout, you know, the previous crash, you know, what's, you know, h- how do you compare those two sort of performance metrics? It's ve- very it's difficult. Um, and so, you know, I think there's still, I think there's still actually theoretical work to do uh, there in terms of how do you how do you compare, uh, you know, financial and wealth management strategies? Uh, so there, there's there's a lot of work to do. I, I think fu- fundamentally, though, there needs to be a drive, uh, you know, to uh, make advisors want to be transparent. Uh, whether I don't know whether that's through regulation. You know, again, I, I think answers are better answered through through the market, if at all possible. I mean, regulation should be a last. I think. Uh, uh, effort if, if the market's failing, but you know I, I don't. I really don't know what impetus is going to be there. Uh, you know, there, it's too much of a. There's again too many. I think rent seekers within the industry, and there's there's too much kind of structural, kind of just you know rent being extracted from from people to to motivate you know any large scale transparency. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's certainly true. I, I actually heard a story uh, recently about um, some smaller wealth manager who'd left a private bank and taken some clients with him and um, who really didn't work much but was mooching off a significant amount of money in, in perfectly legal fees and his clients were were happy but he actually wasn't doing much at all other than checking in once a month or once every few months or something like that and yeah you know taking his uh, assets under management uh, fees and you know whining dining and, and enjoying life the rest of the time which uh, you know you have to question uh, is someone like that really worth um, uh, you know one one and a half percent uh, management fee <coughs> Well, I think, you, you know, you get these situations where, you know, you have you know, maybe elderly people who don't, you know, have, a, you know, uh, aren't sophisticated or, you know, they're, they're uh, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of being charged these fees and you've got investment advisors kind of, you know, milking, you know, these, these clients basically uh, for the end of their, their life cycle. Um, 
now there, I, I think there, there might be a, a good solution in terms of, you know, what one idea I've, you know, toyed around with is this idea of opening up kind of financial advice to uh, not just from the household level, but to the family level. Right. So, you know, I'm, you know, uh, my, my parents are, are retired and, you know, like a lot of people, you know, my parents asked me to kind of take a look at their investments once in a while. And, you know, they send me a bunch of, you know, half open envelopes that I kind of try to piece together uh, into something, but it's, it's not an easy problem. Uh, you know, what would be you know, a lot easier is if, you know, they're my, you know, my parents' investments were, uh, you know, pulled into one spot and they could simply just give me access to like peek in at what, what, you know, how they're set up. And I can say, Oh, you know, mom, you should be doing this or you should not be doing this. Uh, but adding, you know, that, that level of, of data sharing within the family unit or, you know, whatever unit you, you, you may define, um, I think is a great step towards, uh, towards putting an end to some of those, those, those practices. You know, I'd, I'd like to see some, you know, fintech startups start to address that that problem, like widening the the the. the uh, uh, I guess it's 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 really an issue around kind of data ownership and data sharing, setting things up yeah. where the the investment advisor doesn't own the investment data and it doesn't sit with him. It sits resides with the consumer, who can then give the advisor access or can give you know their children access. Uh, can give read only access. Can give. Uh, you know, actionable access. I think that is entirely doable. Uh, and, you know, I'd like to see, you know, something like that move forward in the coming years. This, that might be another area where uh, Europe in general might um, mm-hmm. take the lead on the US because we already yeah. have the open banking regulation in the EU. I, I'm not sure what Switzerland's doing about it because Switzerland is outside the EU, but uh, EU is certainly doing something about it. And, um, I know of at least a handful of uh, fintech startups that are in the kind of data aggregation space and specializing mm-hmm. in uh, aggregating the data for uh, various parties. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that that's correct. I think if anybody leads the charge on that, it, it, you know, the U.S. will be the the last to kind of follow there. Uh, you know, around yeah, the, the sort of legal issues. On the subject of, um, you know, speaking of who ownership of data and, and so on. Now, assuming this data actually gets uh, pried out of the silos of uh, custodian banks and uh, mm-hmm. wealth managers and, and so on, do you think, what sort of shift in the industry do you think that could create? Would there be new classes of services or anything like that that could potentially turn up because i, I kind well, of see that as a almost a disintermediation of financial services a, a potential it's like you know cable companies got disintermediated by the internet uh, because the content would you know their cables weren't weren't that valuable at the end of the day mm-hmm. yeah so you know i i think this is this is a huge issue i mean uh, you know basically uh, you know th- there's a buzzword that goes around is holistic wealth management now go to any you know wealth advisor or bank that says they they practice holistic wealth management hint pretty much all of them and ask well you know what what how do you do holistic wealth management and i think once you get below the surface you know the first thing you need to do holistic wealth management is to have a clear view of the person's entire financial picture and if you know the way things are structured here in the US at least uh, people have multiple accounts at multiple institutions and right now, they all seem to be fighting tooth and nail uh, from kind of sharing uh, the data with, with, with each other. There, there are account aggregators, but, you know, I've looked at them in detail and they are, uh, you know, they, they don't necessarily deliver as promised. They're very good at delivering things like transactional data, like places like Plaid. Uh, but if you look at the ones like Yodely or, um, you know, uh, Clovo, which was acquired by, by Plaid, uh, which attempt to uh, aggregate, you know, investment data. Um, it, it is not a well-oiled machine. These, these technologies are largely based on, you know, screen uh, uh, scraping, like basically, you know, they, they have a bot that logs into the account and tries to, to figure out looking at the webpage, what the, what the, what the investments are. The, the, I think, 
without going into to any more detail there, I think that, that the problem is there, there is still not good uh, standards for sharing financial data between institutions. They, they seem to be fighting this. Uh, yet, you know, at the same time, they're on the outside, they're, they're promoting holistic wealth management. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I, I think that, that maybe it does need to be sort of a regulatory issue in terms of, of mandating, you know, data sharing between uh, these, these institutions. Uh, I think, in, in, you know, until that happens, um, it's, you know, uh, again, you, you just have these, these financial institutions building up their silos uh, uh, and trying to hold on to, to existing business rather than looking forward and thinking about how to create, uh, you know, an ecosystem that, that probably benefits them all uh, in the long run, but short run creates risks for them as an institution. Yeah. Yeah. I guess this is, this is really the, the big question. I think from a regulatory perspective, I think actually mandating client data to be accessible to clients and whatever service providers, the clients, uh, decide i think actually that's not really an imposition on the business because it's as far as i see it morally it's it's the client's data to begin with it's not yeah. uh, it's not the business's data well it's it's amazing you know we've we've done some work with 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 banks and you know you'd be uh, amazed at even internally within a single bank the the lack of data sharing you know let alone like across different you know different institutions uh, even within this, the same bank, uh, you know, the way financial institutions are structured is there, there are a lot of largely independent silos and you have, yeah. you know, um, you know, guys in, 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 you know, wealth management using a completely different set of software, et cetera, from private wealth. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's data on a particular client that is stored in, you know, different databases that are not joinable uh, in, Use the term, I guess, um, you know, across the firm, and yeah. I, th- I think th- there was, I think I was listening to a podcast recently that was describing like Donald Trump's uh, uh, issue, uh, uh, you know, relationship with Deutsche Bank, where, you know, he he kind of you know soured one one relationship over in, in wealth management, and then just moved over to a different silo and got a loan from that silo to pay off the other silo within Deutsche Bank. And move on, and, and there's like virtually no recognition with, within the institution itself that this was even going on. And so, you know, uh, yeah, again, you know, da- data sharing, like e- even even within firms, it's it's that they are very far away from having, you know, there's no centralized database within, you know, th- these banks that identify you, the customer, and, and can pull all this data together. It's still being held in various different databases in different silos with different sort of security levels and different sort of uh, use cases around them. And that brings our interview with Sean to an end. Uh, I'd like to thank Sean very much for uh, taking part and having the patience um, with the delay in editing and publishing this podcast. Uh, The interview happened a while back. Uh, Hopefully we'll be back sooner rather than later again with um, another guest and another interesting theme. Until then, I hope you have a good time and hope you enjoyed the interview. Bye-bye.